Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. George Weymouth made a career helping to build schools. It's something that made him proud. But if I knew for one second that I was doing something that was detrimental to their health, it's devastating reality is. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. The schools he helped to build were some of the roughly 26,000 that could be contaminated by toxic PCBs. We'll continue our investigation. Plus, what happens when climate change pushes on the wildlife in our forests? All species are adjusting their ranges to this new reality. That means they need room to roam. So what are we doing to connect our forested lands? We'll also go deep into a New Hampshire forest that's been the site of a 50-year experiment on everything from acid rain to what happens during an ice storm. And we'll ask, what makes someone sit for hours quietly waiting to catch a glimpse of a rare bird? I think a lot of birders, they like bringing order to the universe. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Remember our story about Pittsfield, Massachusetts, the Berkshires town that was the site of a massive General Electric plant, and the Housatonic River that was polluted by PCBs from that plant? It's pitted different factions against one another, one side saying that the company should pay more than it has to clean up more of the river, the other side arguing the cleanup could cause even more environmental damage. GE made billions in the transformer business. And we're saying, you know what, you owe it to us. Instead of packing the station wagon, which they've done, it's kind of like you owe it to us to come back to Berkshire County and clean this stuff up. It would be devastating. And this whole section is proposed to have one to two feet of the river bottom completely removed. So every place you see right here would be gone. But there is one thing that both sides agree on in Pittsfield, toxic polychlorinated biphenyls, banned in the U.S. since 1979 and known to cause a host of health problems, did get from the plant into the water and soil over the course of decades. Now the arguments are over how to clean up the mess. But in many other places where PCBs were used, it's not that simple because there's no mandate to even test for the toxin, even in places where it could likely be affecting children. A new report shows that some 26,000 schools nationwide could be contaminated with the substance, which was widely used in caulk around windows and in lighting fixtures. This means some 14 million students could be affected, and the price tag to fix the problem? At least $52 billion. Last year, after reporting from WNPR in Connecticut showed that two-thirds of state schools could be contaminated and that more than 100 schools had tested positive, Senator Chris Murphy sounded an alarm. This is a very scary issue to parents, and there seems to be a lack of really good information from the federal government. And just this month, a report from his Senate colleague in Massachusetts, Ed Markey, called for Congress to immediately address the issue, citing weaknesses in the federal regulations. Schools do not test for PCP hazards and are not required to do so. And when PCB contamination is found, no one has to report it to 
the EPA. Until we require testing, um, until we really start digging into the problem, I think we're not going to know um, exactly what the, the scope is and what the potential cost is. That's Melanie Benish. She's with the Environmental Working Group. They put out their own study on the problem this year, which included a map of states and how they report on PCBs in schools. For example, uh, we have a law that requires schools um, to test for asbestos, um, to have management plans in place for asbestos, and to have that information readily available to parents so that parents um, know what, you know, if their school has asbestos um, and how the school is taking steps to manage that risk. Um, we also know that PCBs are dangerous chemicals. Uh, they were the only chemical that was actually named um, in the Toxic Substances Control Act in 1976 uh, that was required to immediately be regulated under that law. We know it's associated uh, with certain cancers. We know that there are some uh, developmental risks and reproductive risks, um, and that it may affect IQ. And so this is really not something that we want our kids exposed to. New England has reported far more cases of PCB hazards in schools than any other region. We turn to Robert Herrick. He's from the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, and his study earlier this year was cited in the report by Senator Markey. He told me how he got started studying the problems of PCBs in schools. I went to a scientific conference in 2003, and I heard some investigators from Finland describe a national project that they were conducting in Finland whereby they had identified and removed PCBs from schools and apartments and public buildings. And I came back here to Boston, and I called one of my colleagues who I'd been working with um, around some construction health and safety issues. He's a retired bricklayer. And I asked him if he had ever heard of uh, PCBs in caulking material. And his answer was, you're damn right I have. I spent 50 years putting them in buildings. And that's how we got started. That bricklayer the doctor mentioned talked to WNPR reporter David DeRoche for his investigation with Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. George Weymouth is a longtime um, waterproofer. So what he would do is he would mix chemicals, including PCBs, and then use that to seal doors and windows around schools. And um, he said that it was just the best material out there. Uh, you know, working in the New England area where you know, the winters are pretty harsh, um, this stuff was really flexible, it was hardy, and he knew that um, this was the best material they could use. It was a good material. It, it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't hard to work with, no more than it was any other. Only that it was, we used it a lot because it was a good material. Uh, so when we put this polysulfide cock in it, man, it was in the stay. These buildings that I've got testing on, some of them are 20 and 30 and 40 years old. And the caulking, it looks great. But the more Weymouth learned about the chemical and the problems it can cause, from cancer to developmental delays, he said he was devastated. But if I was on that building and watched kids going in and out of it, made my day. See young kids going to school, gee, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm helping to build you a new school or this, that, and the other thing. But if I knew for one second that I was doing something that was detrimental to their health, it's devastating me over the years. I asked Dr. Herrick how he got to the number, 26,000 schools. As we got into it, it, it became apparent that investigators in other countries, uh, in, in particular Switzerland, had done a national survey 
And they found PCBs in about a third to a half of the buildings that were constructed during this time period, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so as we dug deeper into it, our findings confirmed that, in fact, uh, they are present at about that level. Yeah, Doctor, as we read this report, there seems to be a lot of information about PCBs in schools here in the New England region. Is that because there are more PCBs at use in schools here, or is there better reporting by state governments and schools, or, or is it both? Well, there's definitely better reporting. Uh, I think the answer, the unanswered question there about how common it is in other parts of the country is really driven by the lack of any uniform national policy from EPA that would require people to actually do the testing. And so you tend to see more positive results in New England and New York and and Connecticut. Um, But I think that's largely driven by the fact that there's more testing going on here. And if you look at, for example, the findings from the Malibu schools in California, they found very high levels there. So I'm inclined to think that it isn't uniquely a regional problem. When you say there's a lack of any national policy, it, it is interesting because if PCBs are federally banned as, as a substance, and they have been since 1979, you would think that there'd be some sort of federal standards of, of how you should test for them, their presence in buildings, certainly buildings that are built with, with public funds. Any money that comes from a, a state or federal government, say, you'd probably want to know whether or not there are PCBs that have been used in that school. Why, Doctor, do you think there isn't a national policy? Well, I think this is one of the great services that Senator Markey's report uh, has has given us, is that he's shown a very bright light on the inconsistency within EPA about how they actually conduct the testing. And I think that EPA has actually been engaging in willful ignorance of this issue since the early 90s. And they have no uniform guidance for the regions as to how they should uh, advise the local schools, how to conduct the testing, and they have no guidance really about what people should do when they test and find the PCBs. So the question that I always get when I tell people about reporting that, say, David's done on PCBs or our reporter in New Hampshire, Emily Corrin, has done on, on PFOA in water, uh, different chemical contaminants that people are concerned about and certainly concerned about their, their, their children being harmed by, Everyone always asks me, doctor, how dangerous are these things? I mean, what do we know about the real health impacts of PCBs? I've seen them listed as a, as a known human carcinogen or a probable human carcinogen. That's not the only health impact that has been reported over the years. But, but I guess I'm wondering how confident you are that PCBs being present in, in a school building, say, built in 1965, and still being used by school kids in in Maine or New Hampshire, how dangerous that really is to people. Well, I think you're exactly right in observing that the evidence that PCBs are carcinogens is extremely strong, and there's a number of authoritative bodies, including the EPA and the World Health Organization, who've classified them as, as known human carcinogens. But the evidence that's coming out more recently uh, that suggests, well, actually, it's more than suggestive, it's, it's very um, conclusive that PCBs are potent endocrine disruptors and developmental toxins, I think is probably of even greater concern in the case of the exposures uh, in schools because you have this combination of you know, buildings with kids um, exposed to these compounds that have been shown to 
uh, have adverse effects on development, um, on development of the neurologic system, the reproductive system, the immune system. And so they're, they're clearly the sorts of toxins that you don't want um, young kids to be exposed to. Let me read from the report. It says, this report demonstrates that children in schools across the country may be unknowingly exposed to cancer-causing PCBs, that there are generally no requirements for schools to do testing or inspections to ensure that such exposures are not occurring, and that even when potential exposures are identified, the manner in which reporting, communication, and remediation of the hazard occurs is inconsistent and often ineffective. David, it sounds to me like a lot of this is a communications problem. It really is a communication problem, and part of it stems from the fact that the um, the EPA allows states to make their own policies around this. Because there's no requirement to test, a lot of things end up actually happening. Um, For one, construction materials that could be contaminated are going to regular landfills. And this one gentleman who ran a landfill uh, tested his water for PCBs because uh, under his permit, he's he's obligated to do that, found PCBs, and then he was fined $25,000 for finding PCBs on his property. And the only reason PCBs were there that somebody brought PCB waste to him and didn't tell him that's what it was. So okay, so so let's just get this straight. Again, he's fined for having PCBs on his property, right. but he's running a landfill in which other people are bringing contaminated materials, which they haven't claimed to be contaminated right. to him. Right, that's what's happening. And then he mentioned, you know, what what's the incentive for other landfill operators to test if they know they're just going to be fined when they find it? So one of the people I spoke with was John Insel, and he's an environmental consultant. I think that, you know, without a mandate to test, I think that the natural response for virtually everyone is not to look at it. Why would you look at it if the regulations don't make you look at it? That's the natural response pretty much anyone would have. If you have to spend $100 on something or you don't, and it's voluntary, you're not going to spend $100, <laughs> you know? So, so literally, even if you think that you might have PCBs in your building, maybe even you know it's a problem, for many businesses, certainly for many school districts, it's probably in their best financial interest to just keep quiet about it, not test for anything, because testing could bring the real expensive problems. Absolutely. And this is where you have that the, the very classic but painful reality of money versus health. You know, what's the what's the priority? Or is it worth it to spend the money to fix this problem? Or is it uh, too expensive? And that's where the health concerns come into play because we, we really don't know exactly how dangerous they are. There's plenty of evidence to show that they're bad, but in, in case of, of schools being contaminated, um, it's really hard to pinpoint whether or not it's actually making kids sick. So that's where the, the policy issues kind of di- um, diverge there. Well, the one thing we've been advocating since that first paper we wrote in 2004 is that we really need a national survey uh, to determine just how extensive this contamination is. Because as you pointed out earlier, we know a lot about what's going on in New England and in New York. We know almost nothing about what's going on in other parts of the country. And it's just like any other you know, question in, in public health. You really need to know the extent of the problem before you can decide where to prioritize this you know, in, in light of all the other things that we need to address. And that's really where I think EPA has failed is that we've been you know, pushing for them. They have the authority and they frankly have the mandate to do this national survey that would let us make an informed policy decision about this problem. Uh, so I would you know, suggest that that's really the first thing that needs to happen. Robert Herrick is from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He co-authored a 2016 study on PCBs in schools. Dr. Herrick, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. David DeRoche is a reporter for WNPR in Hartford. 
He's been reporting about PCBs in schools for WNPR and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. Thank you, David. Thanks, John. Coming up, an experimental forest and what it's taught us about climate change, bird populations, and the effects of acid rain. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Look at a map of New England and you'll see lots of forest habitat, but a growing challenge for wildlife is that this habitat is increasingly fractured. As we've built up roads and housing developments, Crossing between key forest areas, like the Adirondacks to the Green Mountains, can be a dangerous trip for a moose or a bear. To tackle this challenge, New England and eastern Canadian provinces have banded together to preserve what they've identified as nine key critical pathways in our region. Six out of nine of those linkage areas happen to fall in the state of Vermont. And as VPR's Kathleen Masterson reports, part of this project involves studying just how animals cross the road. To be clear, these aren't any old road crossings. Conservation biologists are specifically looking to preserve pathways in places that link large forested habitat across the northeastern continent. This bridge on Route 15 in Woolcott, Vermont, could be one tiny piece of keeping a pathway open that connects the Worcester Mountains with Vermont's northeast kingdom. Paul Morangelo is a conservation biologist with the Vermont chapter of the Nature Conservancy. He pulls out a statewide map to show just why this spot is a potentially key area for wildlife to cross safely between forested lands. And all the light shades of green that you see here are ways that we think through computer modeling are the most likely places that they're going to be moving based on habitat. These crossroads in certain areas, that's where we're focusing some of this conservation work because roads are critical barriers. But for animals wandering along the stream bed, bridges are an opportunity to walk right under the highway. Here, if they walk along the Wild Branch, a tributary of the Lamoille River, it goes right under Route 15. So this is a great example. We're right here. We're right in the middle of this green band. Um, there's a big bridge here. It's probably one of the best places on Route 15 where animals can theoretically or, or potentially walk under the highway. You can tell by the rush of traffic that the road is potentially a deterrent for many species. It's noisy, dangerous, and exposed. And indeed, initial data are showing that wildlife avoid roads. But some animals do use culverts and bridges to cross. And biologists wanted to see what characteristics encourage animals to cross a road safely. So they put up cameras in some key areas, including here. We have four here right under the bridge. You can see there's two up on that bridge pier, about 20 feet in the air, and there's one on the opposite side as well. We pick our way down the embankment to look under the bridge. This site is, is interesting for a number of reasons. We also have a couple of cameras up in habitat away from the road. We have two to the south of here. We've seen pictures of moose and bear um, within about a thousand feet of this bridge. So we know they're in the vicinity. Yet so far those animals aren't crossing under this bridge. Morangelo says two years worth of camera photos show that right now mostly raccoons and groundhogs cross here. One reason that moose and bear are avoiding the spot could be the way the bridges are built. You can see under the bridge, one of the reasons why we think this might be an important place is there's a lot of room under here. A lot of it is taken up by the river and these big rocks, which are actually not the best places for wildlife to move. Morangelo is pointing to a slope bolstered by three-foot-plus boulders. 
It's called riprap, and it's designed to keep the riverbanks under the bridge abutments from eroding. But it doesn't make for easy walking for hooved animals like deer or moose. The Vermont Agency of Transportation's new standard is when bridges are built to actually fill in the boulders with dirt and grass so animals can pick a path more easily. Little details like this are already showing promise in other areas. Since dirt was filled in under I-89 in Waterbury, many deer are captured on camera using the crossing. That's part of the camera project's goal, to see where animals are crossing, what size bridges and culverts do they use, and going forward, what textures and other characteristics lend themselves to animals crossing. For instance, do they like to walk on rocks or dirt or grass? So that either individual animals or generations over time can move uh, so that sort of smaller populations are mingling with each other so that there's more genetic diversity. That's really critical for the long-term viability and health of wildlife populations. That's Phil Huffman, also with the Nature Conservancy in Vermont. Their work is largely funded by the Agency of Transportation. So far, there are wildlife cameras at 23 sites in Vermont. Other states, including Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine, as well as several eastern Canadian provinces, have also done wildlife camera projects as part of the Staying Connected initiative. Jens Hilke is a biologist with the Vermont Fish and Wildlife. He says keeping forest habitat linked is increasingly important. In the world of a changing climate, uh, wildlife and all, all species are adjusting their ranges to this new reality. So that, that movement potential between these large core habitats becomes even more important. The Vermont Agency of Transportation has already changed certain infrastructure standards. And creating more ways for animals to cross under roads could protect human lives, too, by reducing highway fatalities from cars hitting deer and moose. That's Kathleen Masterson from Vermont Public Radio reporting. In the early 1960s, a group of environmental scientists in New Hampshire started a research project on a scale that had never been done before. Their laboratory was a whole ecosystem, a 7,800-acre forest in the White Mountains. The nine distinct watersheds in that forest would allow for comparison studies, and the length of the study would help to chart the natural and man-made changes that happen in a forest ecosystem. One of their first observations, the high acidity of the water in forest streams, led to awareness of acid rain and the eventual amendment of the Clean Air Act in 1990. More than 50 years later, researchers at Hubbard Brook are documenting the effects of climate change, the decline in bird populations, and a lot more. Gene Likens is co-founder of the Hubbard Brook Ecosystem Study. He's also co-author of a book called Hubbard Brook, The Story of a Forest Ecosystem, which came out in May of this year. Gene Likens, welcome to Next. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Could you start by painting a picture, if you would? Tell us what Hubbard Brook looks like. Oh, Hubbard Brook is one of the most beautiful places on earth, in my opinion. Uh, it's in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. It's a forested region of deciduous forest, beech, birch, and maple. And then Hubbard Brook itself is drained by a large river, but in New England we call them brooks, I guess, so it's called Hubbard Brook. And it's just a wonderful place. There are no ticks, there's no poison ivy, there's no poisonous snakes, and I've always said I can't believe somebody pays me to work there. Perhaps the most famous uh, discovery in Hubbard Brook was the discovery of acid rain. You were the lead researcher on the paper about the effects of acid air pollution on the forests. 
It eventually led to the Clean Air Act in 1990 to reduce emissions of sulfur dioxide and, and nitrogen oxides. Maybe you can talk a bit about that discovery and, and how influential you believe what you found there at Hubbard Brook was to some of the, the legal changes we saw and the new national consciousness about the problems of acid rain. Well, the very first sample of rain that we collected and measured its chemistry had an acidity that was about 100 times more acid than we uh, expected. Then we continued to collect samples, and they continued to be very acid. That first sample was in the summer of 1963, and we didn't publish uh, the paper on acid rain. Uh, We didn't publish that paper until 1972 because we had to try to understand how long maybe the rain had and snow had been acid, where was that acidity coming from, uh, was it causing any damage, was it unusual. It turned out that the acidity was coming primarily from power plants in the Midwestern United States that were emitting large amounts of sulfur dioxide and some nitrogen oxides. And in the atmosphere, those oxides were converted to two of our strongest acids, sulfuric acid and nitric acid, and then they were falling to the landscape and causing the ecological effects. And I led a small team in 1983 to President Reagan and the full cabinet to talk about the acid rain problem and what might be done about it. But the response was, well, we'll study it for 10 years, and then we'll know enough, and we can make intelligent decisions. And, and given that, that study, do, do you think that we made an intelligent decisions in the wake of, of the research that you did and the case that you made for, for acid rain being a problem we need, to, we need to deal with? Well, that led ultimately to the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, which you referred to, and that was signed by George H. Bush in 1990. And it resulted in the continuation of the reduction in sulfur dioxide emissions so that currently in the United States, the emissions are reduced by about 80%, and so is the acidity. The acidity of rain and snow is about 80% less than it was uh, in 1970 or early 70s when it was at its peak. And that's a real success story. But the problem has really not gone away because uh, with all these decades of acid precipitation, the buffering capacity in the soils in these sensitive areas like the White Mountains of New Hampshire or the Adirondack Mountains of New York, for example, uh, have been greatly depleted so that even though the acidity of rain and snow is less, the ability to buffer and neutralize those acids coming in from the atmosphere is also very much less. And so the problem still continues and in some ways is worse than it was before because we have so depleted the neutralizing capacity of the system. I wonder if you can talk about some of the experiments that you've done about deforestation, including one in which you clear-cut large swaths of the forest. What what have you learned about the effects of deforestation by cutting down big groupings of trees in Hubbard Brook? Well, we wanted to understand more about the environmental effects of clear-cutting, which is a common way in which forests are harvested. Uh, it was particularly common in the 
1960s and 70s as a way of harvesting timber. And that harvesting process can be quite damaging to the ecosystem in a variety of ways. And we wanted to understand more about that so we could try to develop a better management plan. And we found that, to our great surprise, that when we cut down the trees, there was a very large increase in nitrate concentrations. Nitrate is a very important plant nutrient. So that led us to understand uh, that we were going to lose large amounts of the critically important nutrient. Uh, But also, we then led to a series of uh, management proposals like, well, you shouldn't cut a, a particular area very often, and we propose every 75 years. And the U.S. Forest Service now has adopted a plan of not cutting a specific area more often than every 100 years, based largely on these results. Also, don't cut on really steep slopes. Don't drag logs down stream channels, which were actually done, believe it or not. One of the other things that you've done over the years is track the bird populations in the forest. And you've noted a, a real decline in the number of birds in the forest from, from 214 individual birds back in 1972 to just 71 in 2002 with some fluctuations o- over the years. Why do you think that the numbers of bird species in the forest have changed so dramatically over the course of the last couple decades? It was thought that possibly, since these are migratory birds coming from places like the Caribbean, that that was a deterioration of that wintering habitat that was uh, causing their decline. So the scientists went to that area and studied and found indeed that the habitat there was being impacted by human activities, but that this was probably not the reason for the major decline in the bird populations. Instead, it has to do with other things, such as uh, mortality during the the migration, some 60 to 65 percent or so of their total mortality occurs during that migratory journey. Another problem was that the forest is actually changing, uh, again, because of natural changes called succession over time, but also because of, of impacts such as acid rain on the forest. And when they looked more carefully at the bird populations, they found that some species, like the leech flycatcher, for example, has totally disappeared. But other species have actually increased, and some have not changed. And it points out very clearly the need for long-term detailed studies in order to answer these kinds of complicated problems. Short-term studies would have said, oh, well, the bird populations are declining, the whole world is is being destroyed, and that's not the case. It's (laughs) much more complicated than that. Well, as you talk about the the long-term studies that are needed on issues like bird species change, obviously the the biggest long-term experiment that's being conducted right now is what are the effects of climate change on (laughs) a number of ecosystems. So I'm wondering what you've seen over these 50-plus years, Gene Likens, of watching this forest grow and recede and change, and what impacts you think climate change have had there at Hubbard Brook? It's getting wetter. Our long-term data show that very clearly. The soils are getting warmer, the air temperature is getting warmer. 
We're having more rain on snow events in the wintertime. The snow depth is less than it was. The winter period is very different by our data than what it was 50 years ago. One of the long-term measurements that we have is the ice cover on a lake called Mirror Lake in the Hubbardbrook Valley. Today, the ice cover is some 24 days shorter than it was in the early 1960s. That has all kinds of impacts on the functioning of the lake. The bud break in the spring of trees and other plants is earlier. The leaves last a bit longer in the fall. And so we're seeing a lot of different impacts. And these are under great intense study at the moment at the Hubbardbrook Experimental Forest. What's the most exciting things happening there right now, Gene? There's currently a large experiment going on while it's related to winter and changing winter and the fact that we appear to be having more ice storms in the wintertime. So there's a a large experimental uh, manipulation going on in which we're simulating an ice storm with uh, pumping water on the trees and causing ice to form on the branches and and the trunks of the trees during the wintertime and looking at that kind of effect. So looking at those kinds of more extreme events in the wintertime in particular is, I think, where a lot of the research at Hubbardbrook is going to go in the next several years. A last thing for you, Gene. I know that at the end of, of your book, you kind of guess at what this forest might look like some years into the future. I know that you've been working there for, for 50 years. What do you think Hubbard Brook's going to be like 50 years or so from now? Yeah, I'm really interested in this. The opening of the book is called The Prologue. We invite you to step into the forest today and let your senses take over. You know, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you feel? And then, as you suggest, the final part invites you to step into the forest in 2065, 50 years from now. Obviously, we don't know, but my personal opinion is that there's going to be many changes For example, I mentioned that there are no poisonous snakes or poison ivy or ticks. Um, We predict that there will be poison ivy and ticks and other invasive species in the forest in 2065. Uh, We expect technology to be much more prominent. The data will be collected by drones flying overhead rather than a scientist walking around on the forest floor. That makes me kind of sad because I love being out in the forest. We suggest that uh, the the sugar maples will be gone because of climate change, but that the Forest Service has planted some uh, GM sugar maples, and the rumor has it that maple syrup from those sugar maples isn't quite as good as it used to be from (laughs) uh, the natural sugar maples. But, and not to be pessimistic because they try very hard to be optimistic, I don't think we went far enough. I think we were too cautious. If you think about the changes that have occurred in the previous 50 years, I think the changes that will occur in the next 50 years are going to be quite large. And I think it's very important to have long-term studies like we've had at Hubbardbrook to not only document those changes, but understand what those changes mean to not only the systems where they are occurring, but to us humans that depend upon those systems. 
Gene Likens, thanks so much for, for taking us on a tour of this uh, this forest that you obviously love so much and you've been working uh, with so closely for such a long time. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. I do love the forest, and thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. Gene Likens' book is Hubbard Brook, The Story of a Forest Ecosystem, and it's published by Yale University Press. If you'd like to visit Hubbard Brook yourself, it's open to the public. If you'd like a slideshow of images and directions to the forest, just head to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, the patient sport of birding. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. Not every outdoor sport in New England requires extreme athletic ability. Some just require a lot of patience. Our next story comes from the podcast Outside In at New Hampshire Public Radio, where host Sam Evans-Brown delves into the subculture of extreme bird watching. In 2013, Neil Hayward was depressed. He had just left the biotech company that he had helped to start, but got kind of bored with, and he was getting over the end of a very serious relationship. And suddenly, he found himself doing a lot of birding. Because I, I had so much free time that year, I could end up staying, I could put in a lot of hours and wait for birds. And that always paid off. I waited for eight hours for a hummingbird in southeast Arizona. And uh, just as the sun was setting, this bird came in. And I'd been sitting outside through two thunderstorms and rain and uh, was about to give up. And it was just the end of a, of a great day. If sitting still in the rain for eight hours doesn't sound like a great day to you, you are not ready to join the ranks of the nation's best birders. Neil, who lives in Boston, is one of the birding elite. Back in 2013, when he was feeling depressed, he decided to do something birders call a big year, trying to see as many species of birds in the U.S. and Canada as he possibly could in 12 months. The first bird he saw that year? a lowly Canada goose. Things like sparrows, we get really excited about sparrows, all look very similar and they're pretty drab. And to a non-birder, you might reasonably ask, you know, what, 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 what's all the fuss about? Um, but I think it's those birds that, are, that, that have some subtlety. Those are the ones that I think take more time and, and I guess ultimately more rewarding. So let's just start with why birds? I mean, why is birdwatching so popular that it is actually an activity that we've all heard of? You don't hear about people going reptile watching, even though that is a thing. There are people who do this. It's called herping, as in herpetology. You know, in, in New England, there's only like five or six species of frog, so uh, it doesn't take very long to see them all. <laughs> um, whereas birding is like... Almost like the ideal number, you know, you could spend your whole life birding in North America and, and see new birds every year. Birdwatching is big. Like 60 million people told the census they are birdwatchers big. That's more than, say, they play basketball. And within that 60 million, there are, of course, varying degrees of enthusiasm. Some just do it in their backyards, but there are tens of millions of people who travel, who actually go places just to see different birds. These are people who keep lists. Lists of birds they've seen in a given state, in a given country, in this year, and in their whole life. Lots of lists. And it's a different kind of person who's attracted to this variety of birding. And I think a lot of birders are probably, they like 
bringing order to the universe and like collecting is one way of doing that, categorizing things. It's that same kind of mentality. Certain people end up birders. That was Eric Masterson. He's our go-to guide to birding culture. He works for the Harris Center for Conservation Education here in New Hampshire. I've seen characteristics and character traits um, prevalent amongst a lot of the birders that I know. You throw in a little bit of anxiety, throw in a little bit of um, obsessive compulsion, throw in a little bit of overachievement. I don't know, maybe my next career is going to be um, some sort of psychoanalytic, uh, take a master's in psychoanalysis and figure out what it is that drives birders. But I re- I'm actually serious. I think there's something to that. You um, could open a practice and just focus on helping birders heal. Yeah, and I'd be broke. <laughs> <laughs> So let me tell you how the extreme variety of elite birding works. Birds are on the wing, on the move. You never know what you'll see. Who knows? Maybe it'll be something from the other side of the Atlantic that blew its way over here in a storm. When a bird shows up outside of its typical range, birders notice. Now, this doesn't have to be a rare bird. It could be the most common bird ever. We could be talking about a robin, but if it shows up somewhere it's not supposed to be, suddenly it's a rarity. They call this a vagrant, and word starts to spread. Pagers start ringing, texts go out. Email list servers start to light up, blogs are updated. Instant communication. It doesn't matter what time of day, it doesn't matter what day of the week, birders drop everything. And you know, you're talking about lying to the boss to take a a sick day, um, which... You know, it's people do. (laughs) Eric remembers two instances of this happening that were kind of extreme. Once in Ireland, when a rather common American bird showed up. There were jets that were chartered from as far away as Geneva for this thing. And I just privately, privately chartered jets. Privately chartered jets. Get a few people on on uh, to get together to privately charter a flight. This bird generated for that local economy in in the order of, of. Several hundred thousand euro. And this is not a European phenomenon. Earlier this year in New Hampshire, someone spotted a European redwing. Again, in Europe, this is a pretty common bird. More than 500 birders from all over the country dropped everything to fly here. Now, you picture Hollis High School. <laughs> Hollis High School, right? And it was actually, you know, we're, we're in an era where if you have 500 middle aged men with optics descending on a high school, it kind of rings alarm bells. Confused police officers, disgruntled neighbors. This is what extreme bird watching looks like. And this is the game that Neil Hayward decided he was going to play. For an entire year, he was glued to birding forums and listservs, waiting for rare bird alerts and chasing them whenever they arrived. Just as an example of the kind of behavior this leads to, once Neil heard that a blue-footed booby, which is normally a Mexican bird, had just landed in New Mexico. And I flew to Dallas. When I got on the plane in Boston, the bird was still being seen. Um, Numerous reports, lots of birders, very happy. And I got to Dallas at midnight and uh, turned my phone on and had a text message from a local birder saying that the bird had gone into rehab. It was emaciated, it wasn't eating. Even if Neil had been able to get in to see the bird, which he probably could not have, captive birds don't count. They have to be wild. So I had to get back on the plane that night, uh, four o'clock in the morning, flew back to Boston. Um, so obviously a upsetting trip, but obviously more upsetting for the booby. 
Neil spent tens of thousands of dollars on his big year and racked up 250,000 frequent flyer miles, spent many, many weeks away from home. And while Neil did his big year, he was also falling in love. Last year we did a trip down to Central America um, and we also stayed in this canopy tower that was just set above the canopy of the rainforest. And that's something that I never thought I would do in my life. Jerry Hayward is now Neil's wife. Now, this might strike you as a difficult way to live if you wanted to live with another person. But I think very often, significant others of birders become de facto birders themselves. But he's also taken me to a lot of trash dumps in New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, you know, yeah, those were some of our first dates, so. <laughs> As December rolled around in Neil Hayward's big year, he was only eight birds shy of the record of seeing 748 birds in a single year. He had spent weeks on end on weather-beaten Alaskan islands way out in the Bering Sea trying to spot Asian birds that had been blown off course. He'd been to the islands all the way out at the very end of the Florida Keys called the Dry Tortugas. He'd been to the Canadian Rockies, the American Rockies, the Santa Rita Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and countless wildlife refuges and state parks. But he says it was only right there at the very end of the year that he thought, hey, I might beat the record. I might see more birds in the U.S. and Canada in a year than anyone else has ever. Um, the record was uh, 748. There's a couple of mallards uh, flying in front of us. Ah, see, he never stops birding. Um, so yeah, at the beginning of December, I was on um, sort of low 740s. And that was exciting. I mean, and I thought there's a good chance that I won't beat the record. And then does that mean that this is all a failure, that, you know, that I didn't do what I was supposed to do? As those final 30 days are ticking down, Neil is traveling frantically from Texas way out into the Aleutian Islands, then to California and to Florida, and then way up north to Homer, Alaska, trying to find those last eight birds. Finally, he ends the big year on a boat off the coast of North Carolina, where he saw a great skua. At the end of the year, I, I, I hadn't beaten the record, and I was still waiting for a couple of those um, ABA firsts that had never been seen before to be accepted. And so this is the final thing you need to know about elite birding. If you had any doubt as to whether this is actually a sport, guess what? There are referees. Oh, the uh, Grand American Birding Association. <laughs> uh, they're the group that sort of manages the, the US and Canadian list. There are birds that count, and birds that don't. If you see a bird that's not on the list, you'd better have a camera with you. You'd better get a good photo. Neil saw a Eurasian sparrowhawk and spent all day trying to get a good picture by holding his iPhone camera up to his telescope lens. But ultimately, the ABA rejected his sighting. He also saw an American condor. Remember, condors had been nearly wiped out and then were released back into the wild and their population was rebounding, but according to the ABA rules. They hadn't been in the wild for long enough. Ironically, the year afterwards, then they were added to the list. So if I'd done my big year in 2014, then I would have been able to count that. So birding, it's got rules, it's got fierce competition, though it's largely on the honor system, and it's got superstars. Eventually, Neil Hayward's big year was declared the biggest ever. A common red start and a rufous-necked wood rail that he saw were both accepted by the ABA, 
and he broke the big year record by one bird in June of 2015. Neil's record didn't stand for long, though. This year, there are two birders who have already passed his mark, and a third might still get there. I talked to Neil before hearing this news, and so I called him up. And he pointed out he actually got a late start and didn't get going in earnest until April. So uh, does this, uh, this doesn't stir any desire in you to start over again next year and actually start at January 1st? <laughs> um, when, when I started doing my big year, I, before that I told, I told people that I would never do a big year. The whole idea of it sounded crazy and uh, just kind of insane and a lot of work, a lot of travel. And I said I would never do that. And I ended up doing it. So... Uh, even though now I say I will never go back and do it again, uh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we are creatures that we do ourselves do not understand. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear more stories about crazy birding, Neil Hayward wrote a book about his big year. It's called Lost Among the Birds. Between its covers, you'll find much more about the odd and wonderful culture of birding. And hey, you might learn some things about individual birds, too. Outside In is produced at New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find more fascinating stories about the outdoors at outsideinradio.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraska. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Noah Levitt. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, go to toddmerrill.com. I'd also like to thank Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.